Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to the HBO official Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. You say Flash, I say Thunder. Episode 6, Baston. To me, this is one of the series' most humanly compelling, poetically written, visually thrilling, deeply personal instalments. An episode with a tenderness so incongruent to its setting. The Battle of the Bulge, which has Easy Company pinned in frozen foxholes in the Ardennes Forest, where General Anthony McAuliffe, played by Bill Armstrong, ladles out the orders and portends what's to come. Hold the line, Colonel. Close the gaps. We'll do it, sir. This goddamn fog won't lift any time soon, so you can forget about air cover. Your first battalion just pulled out a foy, Krauts on their tail. Tanks, artillery, got no backup. There's a lot of shit heading this way. As Easy Company digs in and waits, this episode unfolds through the eyes of one of its most singular characters, Doc Eugene Rowe. A man whom we encounter in Baston's opening shot, trudging through the fog and snow. We see a close-up of the Red Cross armband before we even see his face. From there... We follow Rowe on the endless quest for supplies. I need scissors. You got scissors sharp, scissors. From foxhole to foxhole as the Germans rain artillery onto Easy Company. A storm of steel, during which the explosions are mixed with the anguished cries of... Ultimately, we follow Rowe back and forth to the town of Baston, behind the lines, where he forges a bond. One born of empathy, really, with Renée Lemaire, a remarkable Belgian nurse who, like Rowe, is perpetually pitted in a staring match with death as she works to treat wounded soldiers at a makeshift field hospital located in a church. When Baston first aired, many hardcore viewers were surprised. They tuned in, expecting to be exposed to epic set pieces and Michael Bay-scale battle scenes. Instead, they were served a show of subtlety, tiny moments, a narrative that captured the big story in a deaf, nuanced way, and to me, was all the more powerful for it. But without sacrificing any of the resoluteness that had become a core value of Easy Company, 
whose tenacity is best summed up by Colonel Sink himself. We've stopped cold everything that's been thrown at us from the north, east, south, and west. Now, two days ago, the German commander demanded our honorable surrender to save the USA encircled troops from total annihilation. The German commander received the following reply. To the German commander, nuts! We're giving our country and our loved ones at home a worthy Christmas present. And being privileged to take part in this gallant feat of arms, we're truly making for ourselves a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you all and God bless you. My guest today, well, to me, he's one of Band of Brothers' greatest scene stealers. A man who plays technician fourth grade Eugene Gilbert Rose Sr. A medic so dedicated, so earnest, possibly the most selfless human being in a series filled with them. Known by the men as an angel, Roe cuts a ghost-like figure, flitting from foxhole to foxhole, man to man, akin to human purgatory, the last face so many soldiers would see on the journey between life and death. Stephen Ambrose in his Band of Brothers book described Eugene Rowe's role thusly. The medics were the most popular, respected and appreciated men in the company. Their weapons were their first aid kits. Their place on the line was wherever a man called out that he was wounded. Lieutenant Foley said of Eugene Rowe, he was there when he was needed and how he got there, you often wondered. It is a true joy to welcome the man who brought the Cajun saviour so memorably to life, Mr. Shane Taylor. Merci beaucoup, huh? <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> that was some intro. <laughs> You've still got it, Shane Taylor. And I, I will imagine between your first response and then the words that came after the first two, a lot of our listeners are utterly shocked to know that Mr. Shane Taylor grew up in Kent, mm. England, thousands of miles away from the nearest bayou. Yep. No petroleum and crawfish festival this side. <laughs> we will talk more about your accent in a minute. I want to hear about how you came to Band of Brothers in the first place. You were a young, raw actor. You had a role in dinner theatre when you heard about the auditions. Just <laughs> explain to America the notion of dinner theatre. Locate yourself in your career arc. Well, I hadn't been graduated that long. And this was out in the provinces. It was a lovely theatre, actually. I was employed by a director friend, I suppose. He directed me in a production when I was at drama school. It's a place where you have coach loads of normally senior citizens, old age pensioners, as they're called. Bless. Yeah. I mean, a great crowd. And they would have their dinner and there was a whole package deal about it. And then we'd go on and do theatre. Very light entertainment really was what it was. And yeah, I was part of that and thoroughly enjoyed it. But the problem was when Band of Brothers came along, I still had a bit of a run to go. So there was a bit of a battle going on. And I think <laughs> uh, production were, were like the great Meg Lieberman. The casting powerhouse, Meg Lieberman. The casting powerhouse, dearest Meg. It was a case of, look, don't F this up. I suppose it was a bit of a bitter taste. The director and I were, were on good terms, but I think even he felt let down 
Did he say, Shane Taylor, you'll never do dinner theatre in the provinces <laughs> for all these pensioners again. Mark my words. And I haven't. And I haven't. I could have done with it over the years. We didn't have understudies, but they got somebody in and it was okay. Give us a sense of the audition process from tiny, dirty, little ramshackle room to, you know, the great Hanks. Row came pretty early. I didn't start with that. I think it was a Spears speech. To Blythe, you've got to accept the fact that you're already dead, which is a pretty heavy <laughs> beginner. And then I think it really was triage out who they thought might match up with other roles. Roe was always a consistent. So whoever I was getting along the way, Roe was always in that bag to do. And then it got to a point where you get a feeling as an actor, you get a feeling that you're getting close to stuff. And then, of course, at the Athenaeum, the hotel, this is the big Tom Hanks castaway mode meeting a few more bodies in there. I mean, you're very casual about it, the Athenaeum Hotel. My God, the Athenaeum <laughs> Hotel, just walking into the lobby of that, you know, is wow. And you're not just auditioning in front of anyone. There's Tom Hanks in the middle of Castaway, <laughs> Tom Hanks, full on Chuck Nolan beard and all. Like, I'd be like, where's Wilson? Take us into that room. I didn't recognise him, so that probably helped. It was a, a really nice conversation and he put me at ease. By that time, it was Doc Rowe all the way and we were in the middle of one run through. He had a satchel bag. He very casually gave it to me to be a medic's bag. And I took it and without dropping a beat, continued on with the scene, rummaging around in this thing. I guess for him and the rest of them, just to see if I could work with a prop, see if I could think on my feet and not bump into furniture and things. And I never did, fortunately. So this is the deal clincher. They're like, we like him, but can he work with a bag? (laughs) (laughs) Work very heavily with the bag. (laughs) Come of the hour. The bag ultimately was your Wilson. Did any part of you wonder or even ask them why... They would want an Englishman to play such a deeply singular American character in the first place. It's known in the industry, you know, Brits are cheap. If I remember (laughs) rightly, Scott Grimes, Malarkey, he had a good buddy that was very much in the running for Roe based in LA. And I think that might have been an initial bit of a gripe for Scotty. You know, when I first met him, he was one of the first I met. Who is this Englishman that has taken my buddy's role? You know, so. (laughs) They gave you the opportunity to choose between Roe. Or another part, right? They gave me this choice of between being one of the best soldiers, as they put it, in the company. I never knew, never found out, never wanted to know, although I do wind up Matthew Leach, who played Floyd Talbot sometimes, and say, yeah, I could have had your role. (laughs) It was always Roe for me. I just love the idea of somebody trying to save lives in a theatre of war. There was a purity about it, and I also like that juxtaposition of somebody that isn't a soldier who's aiming to take lives, he's saving lives, but at the same time, probably seen more blood and... God knows what, than any of them. Very visceral and raw and emotional. It just seemed to me you could train all you wanted, but it just seemed so sort of just random. Things were going off all over the place, you know, and he's just getting to wherever he's got to go to. Just having that mental fortitude to do the job, to finish that one and go straight to the next one. There's no stopping it. <laughs> it was the relentlessness of it I found fascinating. That's some sort of guardian angel stuff. The psychological mindset of all that appealed to me. I was always interested. I don't think it's definitively known how and why Eugene became the medic. Doc Pepping, who was 101st, he said that he filled out a questionnaire. On the questionnaire, it said, do you think you could kill a man? And he said no. So he got made a medic. Not a lot of Eugene Rowe in the Band of Brothers book. And you were unfortunate to not be able to speak to the real Dot Row firsthand. He passed in 1998 and you've said you missed out 
on the man. But you did reach out to the family and called his first wife Myrtle. Tell us what her initial instinct was. Who is this scary, weird-sounding guy? (laughs) (laughs) She gets a cool call from you, a young English actor. She thought you were a scammer, right? (laughs) What are you selling? That was a no-go, and I can't blame her. HBO were really great at providing production materials to go and explore lots of different leads. And Ralph Spina, the assistant medic, sent me packages of newspaper articles, pictures of themselves, and also a little on what the job was about, which I thought was just incredible to get that kind of information, and of the period, which was very specific. You see Ralph Spina, the other Easy Company medic, alongside you in Baston. He's the one who Dot Rowe keeps conferring with about exactly where to get scissors. During basic training before the shoot began, you actually learnt a lot about the role of medics from Dale Dye, the decorated Marine veteran who trained the cast. He was a gentleman that really taught you exactly what the medic meant to the companies. Yes, and I think Dale himself had been helped and assisted by a medic in his time in his service. The idea of you protect the medic, the medic protects you, and that carried over into boot camp. We were all his sons in many ways, and he was very protective, but I was really spoiled. Indoor classes going through capillary bleeding, venous bleeding, arterial bleeding. The rest of the fellas were out in the rain doing some kind of drill. And we were having coffee, you know. <laughs> Inside. It wasn't a bad deal, you know. Yeah, it wasn't a bad deal. And I remember a particular drill they had was like war games as a kid. They were all doing what they were trained to do with their weapons. I remember Dale saying to me, your job is to go out. If anybody gets hit, you can go and check how they are, tag them back into the game. But if you remember war games as a kid, nobody would admit to getting hit. So I'm just running around. <laughs> I'm saying, come on, <laughs> god damn it! Somebody's got to go down. I gotta, 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 I need to tag. I need to tag let somebody. A, let a man do his job. <laughs> yeah. let, let a heal the heal. This is amazing. So, first of all, I want to be clear. You, you just drop casually that while everybody else is getting fit, you are going in a crash course of being able to identify capillary bleeding. I mean, this is like yeah. boot camp med school hybrid for you completely participated most of the time with the other things but i was getting my education in terms of using the sulfur using the morphine the whole procedure and do it quickly as fast as i could there is a story that i heard from Liebgott, mm. which is you became so well trained so well drilled you subsumed the eugene ray personas to such a degree <laughs> that the other actors started to see you as a bona fide medic and actually seek out your advice my job after a day's activity, this is after chow and we're back in the barracks that we all had in different platoons, I'd have to go around before I could settle and check everybody out. Corcoran boots, they're difficult early on, you know, so I was with second skins trying to treat people's feet. I remember one guy had a rash somewhere. I just threw him a cream. You take care of that. I'm not going to ask where. <laughs> and frozen peas for any bruising, you know, all that stuff. Got to a point where people were coming to me. They were told to, but at the same time, we did try and get really immersed into it. And I remember Nixon came to me, Ron came to me one day with a fishbone stuck in his throat. Nixon has got a fishbone stuck in his throat, which yeah. I've had that. It's excruciating oh, it's and terrifying. Yeah. And your throat is constricting. Yeah. And his... Number one impulse is, yeah, let me go and speak to Shane Taylor. He's the man I want to save my life in this moment. I'm going to go to dark. That's what he did. But it was huge. It was like a spear. And I could see it with this flashlight, you know, this torch. And I assembled some kind of Frankenstein device, all sterilized. I want to go on record now. You weren't like, I am an actor from dinner theater. 
you were like, okay, quickly, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like the A team in a barn. I'm gonna throw together lots of contraptions and make a medical device. That was your response. That's a very good, yeah, B A. It was definitely that. <laughs> B A Barack. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's true. I could have killed him. English Mister T. But I didn't even think about it. I just, well, Nixon's in trouble. Got to get it. I had this trigger with tweezer things on the end. And I was getting it. I got hold of that thing a number of times just to loosen it up. He's gagging all, of, all everywhere. But we loosened it. We, we, we made it. We got it out. Success. My God. <laughs> Proof is Ron is still alive just by the sound of things. A fabulous career. Just imagine if I'd ended it all. All that work we would have lost. <laughs> no, the, the amazing part of this story, that old General Hospital related line, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. You were like a twist on that, that I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV so convincingly that the other actors are completely 100% sure that I am. Compton had a rifle and M1 that split his lip or brow all over the place. They played a trick on me initially because they told me, you've got to get down there. He's in the mess hall. He's a mess. I'm like, what am I going to do? What am I? This is to Dale. And Dale's like, you know, you're the doc. Doc. In that moment, you were 100% sure that you were going to stitch up this bloody man and save the day. Yeah, there was that. I was thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm going to go into. It sounds awful. For a second there, I thought, I'm in this. I've come this far. <laughs> Eventually, they said, no, 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 it's okay. But let's play a trick on Neil. And so Neil's in on the table. And I walk in. And his look to me as I'm approaching. <laughs> he was just petrified, and I think he had a few choice words about me getting out of there. <laughs> well, get your fishbone out your three two Neil, while we're at it. Let's do it. Let's dive into the accent, the Cajun accent. I'm Gene, Eugene Rose. Where are you from? Louisiana, half Cajun. I mean, first of all, had you ever been to Louisiana? Not at that point, I don't think. My wife's from Arkansas, so it's not too far. And her uncle is in Louisiana. So subsequently, I've been down there a lot. So you find yourself an accent coach, Joan Washington, who hands you a cassette of 1940s Cajun French. Yeah, it was so thick and it was English and French all at once. And I'm like, well, this is an interesting challenge. You know, I like it in general doing accent. I do most of my stuff is accent work and dialect work. And I love American stuff and their different regionalizations. And so it was all good for me. It was all part of the toolkit and it's something to grab onto as a character's stepping stone. And it was a good thing, I suppose, that Bastone was a little way down the line. I could ease it in and get used to it, be around every day, but just still try and hone what I was going to do, I suppose. And then there was a meeting with Tom at some point. I went into his office and we set something that I felt like would be a good place, not too jarring. The tape that I got with the 1940s, I think it would have been a little too harsh, a little too fast. I just wanted... Well, I wanted the big easy. I wanted a little bit more of that Bayou sound. And not too cartoony. You know, I think that Cajuns have probably been given a bit of a raw deal, being the butt of many jokes and cartoony sounds. I just wanted something that would give an essence and something that I could really go into the character with. Is it an accurate interpretation? I'm not so sure. But was something a bit more resonant, a bit more soothing, which I wanted also to try and put across. But I enjoyed doing it. There's a detail I love in this episode where Roe reveals his grandmother was a traitor's. Laid her hands on people and cured them. Took away sickness, cancer, you name it. A mythical figure in Louisiana Cajun culture, blessed with the power of healing, which is thought to be a blessing from God. Stories like that were great to be able to get even further into him. I always felt like there was a spiritualism in the way that he's depicted here and 
I looked at him as slightly different on the edge of it, but he's very much part of it. The way you play Rout is one of true introverted economy. He doesn't really say anything unless he truly has to. And you have self-described as quite an introverted kid, super shy. <laughs> There's a lot of that in Eugene Rout. Yeah, I like the idea of this guy that needs to be calm in the face of chaos. I really wanted that essence of him being very grounded, strong, but vulnerable, empathetic, for sure, was there in the writing. And I most of those still moments throughout the show by any of the actors in it are really powerful, aren't they? And I just felt for him as a character, he only speaks when he needs to, and he moves when he needs to, and there's a lot going on in his head. We first get a sense of Rose role in Crossroads, episode five, in which he berates Winters and Lieutenant Welsh for giving too much morphine to Moose Heiliger after he's been hit by friendly fire. You give morphine? Yeah. How much? Oh, I can't remember. Two, three serrets, maybe. Three serrets, maybe? Yeah. Jesus Christ, were you trying to kill him? It was two. You don't think it might be important three. to let me know how much medication the man has had, huh? Because I do not see one serrette on the man's jacket. I'm sorry, Doc. It was a good thing he a big man. Maybe he's stand a chance. He was in a lot of pain, Doc. We didn't know what to do. Yeah, well, you ought to. You know, you are officers, you are grown-ups. You ought to know. All right, let's go. Come on, move it. Now, I'm fascinated psychologically. After being such an ensemble character for the first five episodes, emotionally, how do you feel about stepping up into the spotlight? Almost like a bass player being given the opportunity <laughs> to be the lead singer for one song. Well, let me just say, I mean, I enjoyed pulling rank on uh, Welsh and Winters. <laughs> Let's get that down. That was a good night. <laughs> I may have been in and out on the episodes before, but it was one of those things, you know, I was there every day, more or less. I remember I moved, I was on my friend's couch, guy playing Tipper, Bart Rospoli, a friend of mine. I was on his couch for most of that first bit of it. And then I decided to move very close to the studio. I just wanted to live, breathe, sleep, all of it. And for the next month or so, I was just immersed into it. And by the time six came, that stone came, I was ready. Luckily, I had David Leland, the director, who was from a theatre background. And so there was this great, he and I would often get into a foxhole together with nobody else. At the beginning of the day, we'd talk about what we needed to do. We'd talk about some ideas. That would seem to be very closed off. And then he would bring the technical people in and we'd go through certain things again. But everything was there to produce the best work that you could possibly produce at that time. Everything about the production, this is the best thing about it, as well as employing unknowns, because that was probably the best thing for me. You know, it was just how well you were looked after that everything was in place to do the best possible job you could you assemble that kind of group of actors that were really really helpful and camaraderie there was nobody that was just you know actors can get funny but I, I just felt that there was a complete awareness of what we were doing historically and what we owed to families and to history just being there as an actor trying to do their best work, you know, is really, really supportive. And to feel relaxed is so important for an actor to feel relaxed and confident and calm about everything going on. Obviously, you have nerves and you try and channel those nerves, but everything about that time coming to Bastogne was just made for an actor to go in and not worry, just do it. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. One of the things that shocks me about how these episodes were made, six and seven, Baston and the breaking point, we see the unforgiving freeze of Belgium's forests, but they're actually shot indoors on a soundstage in a converted aerodrome in Hertfordshire, England. The only thing that would give it away, really, because there's a panorama. All you could see was trees and snow and foggy mist. But it was the echo of the weapons. The echo gave it away that you're actually kind of indoors. <laughs> and also the heat. The heat was a factor. There's no getting away from it. I mean, incredible. So what is the secret to playing cold when you are actually sweating away in thick woolen clothing? People often ask, what was the hardest bit? And I'd say probably that. It's okay sort of putting a little Rudolph on the edge of your nose, but you've got to do a little bit more than that to portray horrific conditions. And do you remember one of the chief um, directing note from David, whatever we were doing, was to keep the cold? Because that was probably, I've been to South Africa and worked in the middle of the summer, but that was the hottest place I've ever shot on. We were in an aircraft hangar, we were under studio lights, and I was running around in these kind of woolen shirts. Every scene that we did, every take that we did, I would have to be fanned down because I was completely sweating. And so David would come in every now and then and remind me, don't be so hot, you know, just keep the cold, keep in mind about the conditions of where you are, going foxhole to foxhole in that complete desperation. And you're improvising stuff. You know, he's thinking on his feet always. Everybody's got something going on, and he's the man responsible to either get boots or patch somebody up and it just seemed like a never-ending carousel of lost hope <laughs> the running scenes the moment the artillery barrage hits everyone else covers road simply starts to scamper running ducking rolling foxhole to foxhole you guys hit you've said these were some of your favorite scenes to shoot the rounds going off the sound the trees the fiberglass trees exploding you had trees that could explode on command. And not only that, they were going in a thousand pieces, it seemed. But the, even better than that was the fact that they had the ability to put them all back together and go <laughs> and go again. These people are true legends in the field. But it was an amazing thing to do. You know, I always had a trajectory to run, obviously. David would always say, you're going to go here, we're going to go there, we're going to end up fixing Pencala or something. But do whatever you need to do to get there. We'll just follow you. There are runs. I don't plan to fall. I'm rolling around. I'm sort of tripping up stuff. I mean, you just, you let it be what it's going to be en route and the camera just follows you. But when you're in the midst of all of that stuff and all that chaos, that's what you're doing. You're ducking behind stuff. It's flying in your face. It's going everywhere. The sound is incredible. I wouldn't have the audacity and the disrespect to say it's anything like the real thing, but it does a job for you as an actor to get into the, to the role and try and get to the men. You're feeling emotions of adrenaline confusion as you're shooting it. It's just that. You're taken up by the whole lot. When everything starts to kick off, I can't even see that foxhole I've got to go to. I've got a rough idea. But the smoke's everywhere. The trees are falling. It's a real adrenaline rush. And there's a scene to play out. But if you've done your homework, you know that should all fall into place. And whatever happens, happens. But you're well prepared for anything like that. And it comes back to that thing about having the best possible 
situation provided by the production to create something. I'm fascinated by Rue's relationship to the other members of Easy Company because he is part medic, part concierge, part <laughs> nourishing life force. At rest, he sits apart, smiles, but doesn't partake in the repartee, nor does he call the other men by their nicknames. We were using that as a device to provide us distance on a friend and fellow soldier level, but also the job he has to do, you know, the chances of him having to try and save the lives of one of them. That was what he was probably going to end up doing, and he would probably lose a bunch of people that he didn't want to get that close to, you know. So I think it was a self-preservation. I can't blame him. I mean, if I was in that position, I'd do the same. It's very difficult. The other key setting for Roe in this episode is the besieged town of Baston itself to which he travels back behind the lines to deliver the wounded to a temporary field hospital set in a magnificently haunting local church. Were these scenes shot before or after the foxhole scenes? Because I'm interested how you maintain a continuity of emotion as your character bounces back and forth on multiple trips. For me, it was always at the beginning of the day, you know, we'd look at the Bible, I suppose, that particular episode, David and I, and we would look about where we were in the story. One of those talks. And again, before any scene. Where's Roe in this story? Those are constructive conversations to have. Whatever scene we were doing, be it at a foxhole or we're going to a church right now, to be able to play that authentically as possible. It's in the field hospital where Band of Brothers has one of its most significant female characters enter the episode. Renee Bernadette, Emily Lemaire. This way. I need morphine, bandages, whatever you've got. Yeah, okay, I can give you a little, but not a lot. The angel of Baston. While it's not clear she and Ro ever met in real life, she really existed, this heroic figure. She was born, served, she died in the town of Baston. Yeah, and I visited her grave of an Augusta Chiwi, don't forget. Augusta, another hero of the Battle of the Bulge, a Bulgian nurse who worked with the US Army physician John Pryor to treat soldiers. Who was very much, in reality, on a par in terms of her authority. And Augusta lived until she was 90 plus and continued to serve. I met her son, Augusta. I was with Doc Rowe's grandson. We went to unveil a memorial for Renee and Augusta in Bastogne, and I met Augusta's son. These are just incredible, incredible people. The town is so proud of her. And Lucy Jean, who plays René, I remember David had a few different Renés in mind and he had a tape and he showed me one day. He said, look, these are the people I'm considering, you know. By that point, they're all good. They're just all good. I mean, I don't know how people decide on these things, but Lucy did have a presence, had a real kind of sense of, again, it's that grounded, somebody that you just feel has empathy, but is strong not to be messed with, really. You see, had that in abundance. And she was great, absolute star to work alongside. Can you imagine coming into that much machismo, Rog? <laughs> you know what? I, 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 have, I think about that a lot, but I think about more the chemistry between the two of you, the relationship between Roe and Renee, as depicted over the course of four visits. It's really beautiful, Shane. There's such a poetry to Roe. But these two, they seem to bond, to forge almost a love, which I'm projecting, but it's never consummated, but deeply, deeply profound. Is it that he recognises in her a sense of common duty, a common service, a common experience? And for a moment, he's not alone. 
The common bond was what they were doing together. Two empathetic people, very spiritually endowed. She and I got together with the script because I felt when we were doing our bits that it would be nice to connect a little bit more through the French as the theme for both of us. Lucy, very kindly, we got together and she translated a few of the English. Comment vous appelez-vous? My name is René. I can speak pidgin French, so I needed her. We got that together. There was something in all of that. There was an early conversation with David again about how far we took that. We could have probably have gone further with it. None of us wanted that, really. We actually preferred it for the audience to project and to not push that and then end that whole relationship prematurely. It was what could have been, I suppose. And you let the audience make up their minds on that. The scene where you sit with her after you have just fought and failed to save the life of a wounded soldier, Rose sits outside and the man who believes he's the descendant of a traitor's, a Cajun healer, whose abilities to heal are holy, he tells René, But your touch calms people. That's a gift from God. No, it's not a gift. God would never give such a painful thing. That line is humanly harrowing. It is. It's one of my favourite lines. Yeah, it speaks to the tragedy, the hopelessness and the helplessness of the situation, doesn't it? That's probably my favourite scene. His name was Tim that lost his life in the crypt in a sticky, bloody mess all afternoon. Bless him. And I just love that moment. That one little window, the nurse and the medic are together talking about it all and, and that connection, unspoken and otherwise. The third visit to the town. Road charges past a foreboding pile of dozens of American corpses. Rene uses his name. They are briefly deeply emotionally connected. These are two human beings who are individuals who cannot let themselves get attached to anyone for fear of losing them, but they've become attached. You know, in this moment when Roe is struggling, Baston has become his respite, but that respite is fleeting. Shortly after Harry Welsh has been shot in the thigh, Roe uses the vaunted morphine finally. I got morphine in my pocket. Give it to him. What do you want it? Officer thigh. Okay. That would have been my other favourite moment, I suppose. It was an amazing night and stuff, again, flying everywhere. Bricks and mortar, but obviously more spongier than the real thing. And I found myself, it's not in the script necessarily, but I had to launch over the top of him to just protect him. He was so exposed. He was getting hit, and so I just kind of launched over the top of him en route. And that was just something that was just kicking in. The atmosphere of the place with everything going on, you just got into it. And Winters sees his medics fraying that the carer needs care. Eugene, get yourself into town, get a hot meal. But Baston that night is a light and a Luftwaffe aerial bombardment. To our horror, we see the field hospital, the church has been hit. All the patients, all the staff have been entombed in rubble. What was it like to play that scene? Running towards the church, the explosion. When I put up my arms there, that's because I'm genuinely feeling the tremendous heat coming off that explosion, and I'm quite a way away. And then getting into the rubble and shooting the kerchief, the little headscarf, it was an emotional moment, and one I definitely am proud of. Watching you standing in the shattered doorway, a man trying just to keep it going amidst all the destruction, you find Renee's blue scarf, as you say, but there's not a single moment to grieve. Get your ass out here! Does this moment, 
does it break route or does it just numb him completely and that's the numbing that enables him to carry on? Because he is a man transformed. I think through that loss, there's a moment of gathering yourself again. It's almost like a reset button that he manages to activate. And that obviously that medic brings him out of a moment. It puts him on course again to getting back. A change man, like you say, reincarnation almost. In that way that it comes again, there's a resurgence. Somebody that can get to work again and not only get to work, but use the very scarf to bandage up Bay. Because in his mind, this is what Renee would have wanted and this is the best way to honour her. I love that because when I watched that, I always thought that was just him recommitting to duty over sentimentality. You know, for a moment, he dropped his guard with Renee. But your take is... That he's honouring Renee now carrying Renee with him. I think it's either two things. He carries that and he takes that home. Or he uses it for a greater purpose, if you like. And he uses that nickname. Babe. Yeah. Hey. How'd you do that? It's Babe, isn't it? It's Heffron. He's one of them and he always has been. He's recommitted to the men. He wavered before redoubling his commitment to victory. Really, just like the remainder of Easy Company itself, which was bedraggled, which was flailing, but then persevered, overcame, and stood its ground, which comes through in that incredible line of his. That's on. That's a goddamn line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I love telling him what for. When Roe has to tell some people to just get there together. I love that, Rog. You know, it's... Uh... <laughs> Those moments are good. <laughs> we think of victory in the Second World War as valiant, as glorious, as heroic. This episode, it really sweeps all that away, turns mm. it on its head, mm. just the suffering, the struggle, the agony. And it was a great departure. I mean, we have time to see the shelling, the heavy shellacking, I suppose, in the next episode. I really liked the slight diversion on the first part of the bulge. And yet, just to show the horrific Groundhog Day existence of the medic and what everybody was going through. It really needed that. If you think about just how long they were in those kind of situations, it needed to be seen. I'm glad there wasn't a glamorous end to the whole thing. This was the point. In the book, Band of Brothers, Lieutenant Foley laments beautifully that Eugene Rowe never got recognition for his bravery. He said, I recommended him for a silver star after a devastating firefight when Rowe's exploits were typically outstanding. Maybe I didn't use the proper words and phrases. Perhaps Lieutenant Dyke didn't approve. I don't know. All I knew was that if any man who struggled in the snow and the cold in the many attacks deserved such a medal, it was Eugene Rowe. Do you believe your performance ultimately, while it's not a medal, was a way of paying honour to Rowe's legacy and all medics who serve? Well, I hope so. I'm not sure it's for me to say. I mean, I often get letters from people that have served that are medics. They're inspired by the show to become a medic. Chris Langlois, who is Doc Rowe's grandson, and I'll name check him here, he said that one of the best things in Bastogne at 75th when I was with him, just through me, that I gave him his grandfather because he never spoke about it, what he did. So that idea of giving him his grandfather, it doesn't get any better than that, you know. I did see an interview with you that you did at Baston during an anniversary in 2016. There were a number of members of the cast there, and you said something remarkable, that because of the power of your role and the intense emotional texture of your performance, 
that you travelled the world going from promotional event to promotional event for Band of Brothers, and you almost have to remind people that you yourself didn't surf. Yeah, that is the one. Just shows you the power of drama and how it can affect people. I know it sounds completely surreal and odd because, you know, obviously the doesn't even work out as a logistical time frame, but you would think that we were the ones who did the real stuff. I've had to remind a few people that we are just the pretenders and we're nowhere near the real deal. You know, ultimately they realise, but it's just that kind of infatuation that is flattering, but it's uncomfortable at the same time because it is all about the real men at the end of the day and what they did. And it was just about us honouring them as best as we could. What's a life lesson you take from having lived as Dot Row for such a long period of your own life? Well, I mean, I think the show is a great exploration of what men and women do in war, but then what that what war does to a person. The lessons from doing it and playing somebody like that and taking it into my own life, I just try and <laughs> be a good person, have empathy. I have two daughters, try and be good for them and honour the freedom they gave, I suppose, in the best possible ways. <laughs> when you watch your own performance, what do you see? I think it was difficult early on. It's difficult for most actors, I think, early on. I'm not unique in saying that. I put some distance between the show and watching it for a few years, but then there are moments in that that I look at now that I can watch it as a story, actually. If you're an actor, you know, you're going to be looking at certain things and whether you could have done certain things a different way, but that's just being pernickety and you've got to leave well alone after a while, just a joy for what it is. I'm just proud to be part of something like that, that has seems to have gained momentum more. You know, it aired not too long after 9-11. It sort of went under the radar for obvious reasons. I think the show, it took a good few years of obviously repeating and all of a sudden this groundswell, this momentum emerged, whereby we're talking about the 20 year anniversary, but in the last 10 years, it's been more of a thing. Why is Band of Brothers popularity, why has that only increased over time? I've been invited to non-profit and charity foundations and you get a sense of, I mean, Europe's always, mainland Europe especially, has always had that affinity with, especially the American side of things. You know, I've been to American cemeteries all over the place. I've seen the way the Dutch treat the graves and adopt the graves, adopt the soldiers. You know, there's a real revelry that I think a lot of people in America, unless they've been, they won't understand. You know, it is absolutely phenomenal. The subject matter is always, always an interesting one for people. It's our history. It's our humanity. We're dealing with real people and we're dealing with ordinary people doing extraordinary things, which is always something to watch because it could be any one of us thrust into that situation. How do people deal with that? There's a lot in there for a lot of people, but I think the connection to history is so vital. And it's a great gateway, Band of Brothers, which I've found and seen over the years for especially younger generations to get into the history, to start to look up the Real Easy Company. And that's how you're going to keep the remembrance going, because obviously, sadly, we're losing so many vets now. So it's important. And each one of us are very proud to carry the torch. If that's what it's going to be, that we helped to keep that going, then we keep that going. And none of us have a problem with that. And I certainly don't. Shane Taylor. It's such a joy and a remarkable thing to speak to you, a human being who has given, to me, one of the most inspiring performances of a show that just, well, it's my favourite show in the world. And the essence of the man is really in the prayer of St. Francis, the improvised prayer of St. Francis, which he delivers in his foxhole. 
slightly improvised that prayer what does it mean to you just echoed the man as far as i was concerned it's a selfless you know thinking of others before you is no bad thing in life is it for him taking a moment that spiritual moment to check back in to his beliefs and to sort of gain a strength to carry on and do what he was going to do it was a confirmation a validation of he was in the doing the right thing and he had his faith he was going to carry on regardless. Shane Taylor, it's an honour to speak to you. Thank you and Godspeed. Thank you, Rog. (laughs) Thanks very much, Kurahi. One of my favourite parts of that conversation, the slightly insane story about Shane attempting to extract a fishbone out of Ron Livingston's throat during actor boot camp story we love so much. We asked Ron about it when he joined this podcast. Obviously, if I thought I was going to die, I probably <laughs> would have tried to find something. But the other thing is, we're at Camp Longmore. We're on a military training camp, and it's like 9 o'clock at night, and who am I going to go to? And they're going to, you know, I don't want Dale Dye going down with a pair of tweezers to get it. Doc Rowe can do it. And you know what? He could, and he did. <laughs> right, I've got to say, Rod, when I say we drank the Kool-Aid, we drank the Kool-Aid. Another cast member who drank that Kool-Aid? Donnie Wahlberg, a.k.a. Second Lieutenant Carwood Lipton. And he joins us next episode, The Breaking Point, Band of Brothers' seventh instalment, in which Easy Company battles the Germans, the sub-freezing conditions, and the incompetence of their own commanding officer, Foxhole Norman Dyke. Jesus Christ. we got to do all this... With a CO who's got his head so far up his fucking ass that lump in his throat is his goddamn nose. And Donnie tells us about the lifelong bond that the series created amongst the members of the cast. We're not the real men of Easy Company. and Our lives were never in danger. There were no bullets flying past us. But the blessing we had of being able to represent them bonded us, the cast and the actors, in a way that is as close as we could ever feel to being those guys. Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. It helps more than we can say. And a reminder that you can watch Baston and every episode of Band of Brothers. You know where to find them on HBO Max right now. Until next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.